Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. Anyone who wants to be president has to come through New Hampshire first, and no one covers New Hampshire politics like WMUR. I'm WMUR political director Adam Sexton, and we hope you can join us every week for this podcast. Impeachment is dominating the discussion in Washington, and even though it hasn't been the biggest topic among primary voters, one Republican challenger just dropped out of the race, citing, quote, too much noise and partisan division from the process. That leaves two high-profile challengers left, including the original former Massachusetts Governor Bill Weld, who joins us today. Governor, thanks Thank for joining you, us. Thank you, Adam. Always a pleasure to oh, be yeah, with you. Likewise. So Mark Sanford, probably uh, one of the candidates you had to watch out for the most, other than the president in this Republican primary, gets out of the race saying there's just not enough oxygen left in the room on the Republican side due to impeachment. You disagree. Why is that? Well, I would hope that uh, the impeachment proceedings as they roll on and move from the House to the Senate would put some oxygen into the room, <laughs> unless we're all going to totally ignore it. Uh, you know, having said that, I will say that it's not the thing that voters most want to talk about these days. They'd rather talk about almost anything else than Donald Trump. I mean, they'll give you the thumbs down sign or, uh, you know, finger in the mouth sign, but they don't want to talk about it. The whole country is kind of uh, exhausted. And, and my hope, though, as a veteran litigator and someone who's handled a lot of long lead time investigations, is that over time, uh, the investigation is going to produce hard facts, incontrovertible facts that Mr. Trump and his defenders won't be able to do anything with because they'll be demonstrated uh, beyond any possibility of dispute. That's what happens in litigation. That's what happens in jury trials. And this is one great big gargantuan jury trial. With a lot of politics laid over the That's top of right. it. A lot of your fellow Republicans think Democrats are overreaching. Do you think they're doing that at all, going too far here? No, no, that's uh, complete. Uh, that's almost ludicrous. Uh, as, as you know uh, from our past meetings, I worked on the Nixon impeachment. So I read all the records about the, when they were putting in the impeachment and removal clause. It was not an accident. They had to show the president could be removed or they never would have gotten the Constitution ratified. And the colonies who were very suspicious of executives and monarchs in, in, in particular. And the two things they were most scared of were uh, foreign interference in the colony's affairs or United States affairs and corruption of office by which they meant, and I mean, abuse of the president's office to further his own interests, whether they're financial or political or whatever kind of interest, anything of value, that's, that's bribery and extortion. The same facts make out both bribery and extortion. And leveraging the $400 million in aid over the head of this newly elected president to make him do something that would help Trump in the election, at the same time that Trump is trying to cancel the first in the nation primary in, uh, in New Hampshire and uh, uh, shut down primaries around the, around the country so that there's no, no contest if he can do it. Uh, it just shows you that uh, his impulses are to try to establish himself so as a monarch. You would contend that uh, if you're a constitutional originalist, this is a classic case that requires impeachment and conviction. You don't have to be an originalist or not an originalist. You can read the plain language of the Constitution and it's there. This is so far beyond anything that Richard Nixon ever did. He had one conversation where he said, tell them it's national security, tell them it's CIA, tell them they should squash this uh, water Gate investigation. Here you have the president on top of the table ordering his own direct, uh, director of national intelligence to commit perjury uh, to, to hide what the president did. And, uh, you know, Senator Coates said, well, what, I can't do that. That would be a lie. 
That would be perjury. And the president says to him and the other three people he had similar conversations with, what's your point? What's your point it would be a lie? What's your point it would be perjury? So he, he so much takes it to heart as a given that everyone's job is to protect his political skirts at any costs. And that's not how the law is supposed to work and that's not how the Constitution works. And the president, I'm so sorry to say this, but he's unclear as to the concept of what the position of the president of the United States is in our scheme of constitutional government. And that's the classic textbook case for getting him out of there. If somehow Republicans do vote to impeach and convict, does your primary challenge to then President Pence continue? Well, I'm not sure there would be time for President Pence to get on the ballot because he would become acting president. But by the time of Super Tuesday, say early March, a lot of deadlines uh, would have passed. It seems to me that our campaign is writing a check for $25,000 to get on some ballot like every other day. And once those deadlines have passed, uh, you, you can't get in. There would be no time uh, for a Ted Cruz uh, to get in or a Marco Rubio. And uh, the fact that Mr. Pence was acting president wouldn't put him on any ballots either. You know how many Republican candidates there would be left standing? Just you. You're looking at them. <laughs> Well, hey, I mean, I guess that's within the realm of possibility, but it seems like a long shot for those Republican senators to go that far. We were talking about constitutional originalism. One of the reasons conservatives uh, stick with Donald Trump is his judicial appointments. They really appreciate what he's been able to do there on the federal bench. If you are president, are you nominating similar justices with similar views of the Constitution to the federal bench? Well, I thought, I thought the two Supreme Court justices were pretty good. Uh, and Kavanaugh, although it got all caught up in that maelstrom at the end uh, uh, with the doctor giving her very powerful testimony, he did have a good record in the D.C. Circuit. And actually, he was pretty good about promoting women and watching out for women's interests there, too. Gorsuch, I thought, was excellent. I read all 26 finalists, read up on all 26 finalists and that nomination and I thought he was the best before Trump even nominated him. So no quarrel there. But one thing I would not do is commit myself in advance to appoint only people recommended by the Federalist Society. I want to look for the smartest person I can find and the whole person and consider their entire life because I want a person, a broad gauge person, a person with some depth uh, on, the, uh, on the Supreme Court of the United States. What do you think about an idea that some Democrats are getting behind of Supreme Court reform? Uh, perhaps instituting uh, non-life terms, essentially term limits on the Supreme Court, and even expanding the number of justices. That's just, those are both terrible ideas. You know, court packing, FDR tried that, and that, uh, that failed for one of a second. And uh, we had uh, life, we have life tenure for uh, judges in Massachusetts. It really does give them greater independence. And you don't want judges to be subject to political currents back and forth. So uh, that's a particularly bad idea. One of your big issues is deficit and the debt uh, in terms of budget and spending. Can you identify some specific cuts that you'd be making as president? Well, I would probably zero out entire bureaucracies. You know, I, I don't start from the premise that the budget item is going to be last year's appropriation plus 5% or 10% as they do in D.C. Anything less than a 10% increase in Washington is called a cut. And you got to go, you know, uh, account by account. And if there's a big bureaucracy there that doesn't seem to be achieving anything, you, you just zero it out. It's called zero-based budgeting, and that's what we did in Massachusetts uh, to uh, not only balance the budget, but uh, 
get rated uh, the most fiscally conservative governor in the United States as a Republican in Massachusetts. One area of spending where New Hampshire arguably needs more help is in the opioid crisis. Uh, we know that uh, treatment takes money. Do you have any ideas, though, uh, from your libertarian days, perhaps, in terms of attacking the opioid crisis from a cultural standpoint? Because that's part of the crisis, too. It's not just something the well, government can fix. I, I, what I, would you do beyond government to try and help? Yeah, them? no, I, I, I've been heard to say recently qu quite a lot that all forms of addiction, opioids, uh, alcohol, tobacco, uh, other narcotics, uh, it should all be treated as one great big health care emergency in this country and, and treated as such, not as a candidate for, you know, a high priority on the criminal justice enforcement list. On opioids, I thought, frankly, what Governor Charlie Baker did in Massachusetts, getting everybody in the room cracking heads, saying, doctors, you can't overprescribe. You have to agree to protocols before you do this. Pharmacists, you got to do that. Big pharma, you got to do the other. Nobody was happy. That meant it was a pretty good resolution. That, that could be uh, a national model. And again, the states, uh, as I learned in my experience, can be laboratories of democracy for the federal government. You're an author. In your younger years, you may have read some James Fenimore Cooper, a book called Last of the Mohicans. Uh, when the historians look back at this race, are they going to say this is the last stand of the Yankee Republicans, the last of his tribe? It's not just it's not just that I'm a Yankee. Uh, it's that I'm, you know, fiscally conservative. I'm an economic conservative. But I believe in other traditions of the Republican Party that I think are conservative, like worrying about the environment, concern about the environment, clean air, clean water, climate change. You know, the root of that uh, conservation idea is conserve, and that's what Republicans always used to be about, and I'm proud to be in the tradition of Theodore Roosevelt and Abraham Lincoln in that regard. All right, Governor Weld, thank you thank so much you, for your Adam. time. Okay. We'll see you out there on the trail. Life's beautiful moments, sunsets, landscapes, wildlife. That's WMUR's You Local Facebook group. Join this growing community and browse the stunning images captured by viewers like you. Or share your own. Get started at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash WMUR9. Go to groups and join You Local. See you there. By this time in the New Hampshire primary process, we usually see the field start to winnow. And while some candidates on both the Democratic and Republican sides have dropped out, we've also seen two candidates, Deval Patrick and Michael Bloomberg, move forward to join the race. I spoke with ABC News political director Rick Klein about the field, last week's debate, impeachment, and where all of this might go. Thanks for joining us, Rick. We just had another big debate. Do you think there were any clear winners or losers? And what's the broader impact on the wider race? I thought Pete Buttigieg appeared like a, a clear winner. He has been surging in polls uh, in Iowa and New Hampshire, a little bit nationwide, and a lot of people thought he'd have a target on his back, and he emerged mostly unscathed, and I think had a couple opportunities to, to really soar above even his rivals and answer some tough questions. People are getting to know him, and I think he did well. I think uh, we had some strong moments from Elizabeth Warren, A.B. Klobuchar, uh, Kamala Harris. I think it wasn't the best of performances for Joe Biden, some memorable moments for the wrong reasons, again, for the former vice president. We'll see if any of that sticks. So 10 candidates on stage, another half dozen or so didn't make the stage. When we talk to New Hampshire Democrats, a lot of them are eager for this field to be winnowed down. Any signs that's happening, even as we see another couple trying to get into the race? 
This is the time where the field usually contracts, and it's weird because it has been expanding of late. There are those signs that things could get uh, winnowed down. It's, it, as of now, a couple of the candidates that you saw just a night ago are not qualified for the December debate. Very hard to continue that way. Julian Castro didn't make the cut uh, either, of course. Uh, looming large across all of this is Deval Patrick, uh, the former Massachusetts governor, now, now running. Uh, we'll see if he attracts support. And Michael Bloomberg, the former New York City mayor. So it, it's still very much in flux. But I think it's important to remember, even though you have this very large field. It's really been the same five candidates, the top four or five that have been uh, there before and after every debate. So it, the onus is going to be on the people in the one, two, three percent range to, to break through, because at some point it's not enough just to make a debate stage. You have to be part of the conversation. Let's take those two new additions individually, Michael Bloomberg and Deval Patrick. What is the path for each of those candidates and the strategy they're going to try to deploy to win? Governor Patrick is hoping that there's just room for someone else to get a look, uh, particularly in New Hampshire and then in states in the Deep South, starting in South Carolina, that have larger African-American blocks of voters. Uh, the hope is that he can channel a lot of what his good friend Barack Obama was able to do uh, in, in having a more unifying theme, uh, kind of an electability theme, a lot of the, the, the same kind of rhetoric that we heard from Obama so memorably. Governor Patrick's hoping to, to get the magic going again. Michael Bloomberg has a much different strategy. He's banking on chaos in the early going. And that's why he skipped filing in New Hampshire entirely. He's not competing in Iowa, New Hampshire, or Nevada. He's starting Super Tuesday. And really, his strategy is, is entirely hinging on the idea that the early states are going to get split and that Democrats are going to look for a savior and that he's going to be maybe the only one who has the resources to play nationwide once the primary goes nationwide in March. So you could see that strategy blow up quite spectacularly early on, or you could see it pay off. For Bloomberg, he seems to be very much approaching this from an investor mindset. And we hear from voters here in New Hampshire, they're wondering, what's he doing getting into this race without a base of support on the ground? But you look at what Tom Steyer's been able to do with his money in this race and the percentage points he's been able to accumulate. And you see, for Bloomberg, there's some potential there. And Michael Bloomberg money is different than, than Donald Trump money or Tom Steyer money. Uh, if he were to spend a billion dollars, and he's worth more than 50 billion, no one has ever seen that. He could potentially spend more than all of the other candidates combined. And if he does it across a range of national states, you can get your name out there, even if you don't qualify for the debates. You can become, again, part of that conversation. Now, look, Tom Steyer has a, a bit of a ceiling. I think Michael Bloomberg is a more substantial politician and businessman, well, better, well, better known than Tom Steyer. But there are limits to what you can do just with money, uh, although I think we're going to see those limits tested if and when Bloomberg runs. Lots of high-profile impeachment testimony this last week. It appears more and more likely that this case will end up in the Senate. If so, what's the impact on the primary race for those six senators who would have to be stuck there in Washington? Look, those senators are going to be chained for the, to their desks during the entirety of an impeachment proceeding, and they're not even going to have an opportunity to question witnesses. They are literally going to sit there mute like jurors uh, in a trial, which it is uh, actually, uh, for that entire time. Now, that's not ideal if you're trying to get things done in New Hampshire and elsewhere, but it's also a situation that fully half of the candidates on stage this week uh, are going to find themselves in. The voting is going to continue as the voting does. I think it's hard for some of the candidates that aren't polling that well, like a Cory Booker, maybe a Kamala Harris or Navy Klobuchar uh, to continue campaign momentum or make something happen if you're not there. I don't think many people are worried about Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. Whether they're in Washington or New Hampshire or Iowa, they're going to be just fine with their campaigns. I think it does, though, overshadow everything. And it's hard to even watch a debate like the one we did last night and not be thinking that uh, the, the issues that those candidates are arguing over seem kind of small in comparison with the big stakes of the goings on in Washington.
Thanks for joining us for WMUR's The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. If you have a moment and can write a review or subscribe to this podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also find us on WMUR.com and our free WMUR app 24-7. See you for the next episode of this podcast next week.